0: Everybody have a have a good night last night? Anybody hear that thunder and that lightning last night? Wasn't that amazing? You know, I had, uh, I had fed Naomi there about 12.30 or so. She gets hungry about every two or three hours like most of us. And, uh, and I got up and fed her, and, and, and it was pouring the rain after I, I, I laid awake there for a minute. And I guess about one thirty, I was laying there still awake, just kind of praying, thinking about things. And... and uh, all of a sudden, you heard, you heard lightning crash, and there was just boom, like rattling thunder. And Andrea said, <gasps> and put her hand over, over on my shoulder and said, what was that? <laughs> I said, Andrea, honey, that was thunder. But, you know, I, and so, so she woke up, I woke up, we were laying in bed, and I started preaching a sermon about the fear of God laying in bed right there. And then, You know, when I was 20 years old, uh, I, was, I was just starting to come to the Lord, and I'm always reminded when I hear, hear thunder like that, because when I was 20 years old, I was, I was just starting to come to the Lord. I started reading the Bible. I've told this story several times, but it always reminds me of, of the fear of the Lord. A lot of times people don't talk about the fear of the Lord anymore and things like that. It's not a very popular topic to talk about in church, but Andre and I were talking about it. And see, I mean, when I was 20 years old, obviously I was living far away from the Lord, doing things that were not godly. And I was reading scripture, I read in Proverbs, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools hate wisdom and correction, right? And I read that in my bedroom one night, and I said, Lord, I am a fool. I said, I have no wisdom. I said, would you teach me to fear you? And as soon as I said that out of my mouth... One of those lightning bolts hit outside of my bedroom and put, I mean, it put the fear of God in me. And there was like a holy fear that came over me. But ma- ma- the Lord can use a, a million different things, Candy, to get your attention? But the fear of the Lord's a good thing, isn't it? Amen. Somebody sent me an article uh, here recently where I think in Congress they were passing some sort of a bill. And one representative had gotten up and he had read scripture to uh, kind of go against a certain bill that was going to be passed And after he got up and read scripture, there was another representative, I think he was from New York, and he said something along these lines, sir, we appreciate that, thank you very much, but the will of God is not of any concern in this Congress. And when you have those kinds of mentalities and attitudes in your nation and in your world, it's quite a frightening thing. And then even in our own lives when we don't have uh, the fear of the Lord in our own hearts, and, and, and when I talk about the fear of the Lord, I'm not talking about the fact that you're actually afraid of God. God is one of the most loving, He is the most loving being in the universe. But see, God is holy and He's pure. And there's so, I love the fact that when I start to move in a direction away from God that the Holy Spirit convicts me, amen? I want that in my life, and I think, I think now more than ever, we need a healthy dose of the pure fear of the Lord that keeps us close to Him, that keeps us clean, that cl- keeps us pure. Amen? Well, anyway, as a, you get that for free this morning. That's not my message. Praise God. I, I just sort of felt that this morning. Last night, I, it got on my mind real heavy. And like I said, I was preaching at 1.30 a.m. In the, in the bed. I even got to kicking a little bit while I was laying on my back. It it was good though, but I'm going to start a new sermon series. And so maybe you're excited, maybe you're not. I'm pretty excited. It's going to be about the tabernacle. I'm going to call this sermon series... Copy and Shadow. Now, if you're not familiar with it, we'll unpack it over the next, all the way up to Easter, most likely, unless the Lord changes something. But Copy and Shadow, and it's about how the tabernacle of the Old Testament actually points to Jesus Christ, His beauty, and His finished work. And we're going to go piece by piece through the tabernacle to unpack this because here's what I believe. Now, when we preach sermons, a lot of times, like last week, we're talking about dealing with conflict, and you can have takeaway steps, like really practical stuff to go and apply to your life we can say man go out and be kind go out and love people better go out and buy somebody a meal and all of those things are good things but I personally have this conviction in my heart that the greatest message preached is not even something necessarily where you have a practical step the greatest message preached is when Jesus is more fully revealed to you and you see Jesus and you are in adoration of Jesus because the scripture actually teaches that when you see Jesus in scripture you are transformed by the Holy Spirit into the same image. So I may not go, I may not leave here today with any practical steps but if I can see Jesus a little bit more in my life, my steps will change. Amen. So we want to see Jesus. That's what we want to pray into. I'm going to start uh, in Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to read some verses. uh, Hebrews chapter 8, 1 through 5 and then we will pray and get into this. So it says, now this is the main point of the things we are saying and what, what Paul is actually, well Some people dispute whether who wrote this, but that's beside the point. I think it was Paul. It could have been anybody. Praise the Lord. He said the main point of the things we're saying, he's talking about the high priest, the priesthood, and the tabernacle of the Old Testament. And he says, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also having something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Notice what he says here. Who serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things. Let's pray together really quick. Father, we're just grateful for your word. We're grateful for your presence and your spirit And Lord, would you teach us, Lord, your word says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Lord, so many of us that we need wisdom, God. And and we begin by having a healthy reverence of who you are, God, and your holiness and your purity. And so I pray that on each of us. But I pray even this morning that more, more so than that, that we would have a revelation, Jesus, of who you are. And as we see you in Scripture, God, we pray and we ask that it would change who we are. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So he says, look, when you go to the Old Testament and you begin to read and you see the tabernacle, it's not there for any, any, any just... Uh, weird reason at all. It's there for, for a very specific purpose. And a lot of times people will go to the Old Testament, even nowadays there are preachers that are getting up and saying, well, you know, the, the Old Testament's not necessarily that important. But the truth is, is that they, the writers of the New Testament said that everything that was written in the Old Testament was actually written for your admonition, for your sake, so that you could have a greater revelation of who God is, who Christ is, and ultimately what God wants to do in your life. Because the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. In other words when you read the Old Testament you are actually seeing Jesus in a type and a shadow. If you look hard enough God will begin to unveil to you the meaning of these things so to, to show you that ultimately all things written in the Old Testament point us to Jesus and to His salvation. And so he's saying, when you go and you look at the tabernacle, he said, they were serving. These high priests, these priests were going in, they were offering up sacrifices. They were working at the bronze altar. They were going into the bronze laver. The high priest was going in once a year to the Ark of the Covenant to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And he said, all of those things that they were doing, he said, they're actually just a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. They were doing something that they didn't fully realize yet, but now because Jesus has come, we have the full realization of what the tabernacle truly is. We have the full realization of everything that they practiced in the Old Testament coming to fruition in Christ. He was teaching them about who He was and who He was going to be in your life. So it's a copy. So over the next few weeks, We're going to go back in time 3,500 years. Y'all pumped about this yet? I don't know. I'm a Bible nerd. So, like, I get all geeked out about this stuff. I'm just like, man, this is going to be fun. Everybody else is like, what in the world is he talking about this morning? But we're going to get into it. 3,500 years ago, they built the tabernacle. And we're going to show you how ultimately, even in the book of John, is where we're going to spend most of our time connecting it to the Old Testament because John lays his gospel out very specifically. The book of John was written later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John does things a little bit different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you'll notice. And and if if you look very carefully, you'll begin to understand that he's actually walking you through the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and specifically he's the fulfillment of the tabernacle. He states specifically that He is the tabernacle, that He is the Lamb of God, that He is the living water, that He is the bread of life, and all of those things, one after one, is what you would see as if you were walking through the tabernacle. So we're going to go through this. Now put a little picture of the tabernacle up there for me. Now you probably can't see that very well, but that is a rough outline. You've got to bear with me on the photos. Uh, but, but if you would go into the, to the gate there, you would have the brazen altar which would move to the, to the bronze laver. You'd have the menorah or the candlestick. Uh, You would have uh, inside the altar of, of incense the table of showbread. And then most of you probably know that there was a veil that was about 16 inches thick and behind it was the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy place. So you had the outer court, you had the inner court, and then you had the most holy place. Amen. I'm just trying to give you a little background so as we go through this, you can understand it a little bit more. But see, Jesus is all of those things. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the living water. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the mediator and the high priest who offers intercession for the saints. And ultimately, He is the Ark of the Covenant. He is the sevenfold sprinkling of blood that atones for the sins of the world. And uh, the Old Testament is going to reveal this to us. And as we see Jesus, like I said, we believe that it's going to transform who we are. So John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, notice what it says. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now the Word became flesh in verse 14. The Word became flesh, the eternal Word of God comes among us and becomes flesh, and it says, and He dwelt among us. Now if you do underline it in your Bible, underline that word dwelt there because it's a very specific word with very specific meaning. And it says, He became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There's a guy named A.B. Simpson. He was a a prolific theological writer and a pastor from years ago. And here's what he said about the tabernacle. He said, the tabernacle is the greatest of all the Old Testament types of Christ, it was all one great object, object lesson of spiritual truth. So he's saying when you read the Old Testament, you see all these types and shadows of Christ, but for him, he believed that the tabernacle was the greatest representation of who Christ was. And what he's saying is, is that if you want to have a more intimate and a deeper relationship with Jesus, most people would say, well, don't go to the Old Testament because you won't see Jesus there. The farthest thing from the truth. He says you can go to the Old Testament and you can unpack those things and you can have a more intimate relationship with Jesus because it will reveal His glory and His work and who He is and you will fall more in love with Him because of it. Now God devoted six days to the creation of the world, didn't He? You know how much time He devoted to the creation of the tabernacle? He devoted 40 days. 40 days in Scripture. He devoted two chapters in Genesis when he created all things, but he devoted 30 chapters in the Torah to the building of the tabernacle. See, the tabernacle was very important to God because one thing, he creates the world, but when he creates the tabernacle, he spends so much time on it because he's saying ultimately this reveals Jesus, and Jesus is even more important than the creation of the world. Amen. We've got the world to live in, but let me tell you something. This world that we live in was created by and for Jesus Christ. He is the word that spoke this into existence. He's the word that now holds all things together in whom we now exist. So my first question is, again, and I've unpacked this a little bit, but what is the tabernacle of the temple? What sense does it make? Why do we need to get into it? But see, the tabernacle in the temple... Really, they're interchangeable, and I'll tell you why they're interchangeable. Because in the beginning, here's what you've got to understand. God is going to bring His people Israel out of Egypt. They are in Egypt enslaved under Pharaoh. Man, they're doing all kinds of hard work, hard labor, and they, they're, they're enslaved for 400 years ...under the oppression of Pharaoh. And God calls Moses and calls him out of Egypt. And then when he's on the backside of the desert, he has an encounter with the living God in a burning bush. And God says, go back into Egypt, Moses. And he said, tell Pharaoh to let my people go and bring them out. Well, he goes and he preaches to them. And finally, God begins to bring plagues on Egypt. And on the day that they say, we're going to institute the Passover, what they do is they take the blood of the lamb and they applied that blood of the lamb which represented Jesus Christ. And they applied it to their doorposts in the shape of a cross and that night the destroyer passed over and took all the firstborn children but when the destroyer saw the blood it could not touch the home praise God and it's a picture of your salvation so they were set free that night from the the enslavement and the oppression which typified your very sin and they come out and they pass over the Red Sea and as they, they pass over the Red Sea their enemies are coming behind them and they split the water miraculously they pass over the Red Sea and as they get to the other side, their enemies are drowned behind them, which is a picture that after the blood of Jesus is applied to your life in salvation, you are baptized in the baptismal waters and your enemies are drowned behind you. Praise God. So they come out on the other end of their baptism and now, like many of you who, when you begin your relationship with Jesus Christ, you find yourself in a wilderness. How many of you, you have ever been saved and you said, man, this ain't what I really thought it would be. This is a little bit more challenging. This is a little bit more difficult. I feel dried don't have anything to drink. They were feeling the same thing. They get out in this wilderness and they begin to say, God, you've promised us a promised land. Why don't we have anything to drink out here? Why don't we have anything to eat? Because he was teaching them something the same way he's teaching you and I something. And in the wilderness, see, he begins to instruct Moses, you need to build a tabernacle. Why? Because I want to dwell with my people and I want to have a relationship with my people. So in other words... What God does is He always redeems His people, which is what He did in Egypt on Passover. He redeemed His people and brought them out of of enslavement and the bondage of sin and oppression. And He brings them out the same way He brings us out. And then He brought them into the wilderness on Sinai on the day of Pentecost to give them the law. And in that moment when He gave them the law, He revealed Himself. So He always redeems His people to reveal Himself so that they may enter into a relationship with Him. And the way that they had a relationship with Him, now right now, like if we got a relationship with God, the way that we talk about having a relationship with God is, well, we pray, we go to church, we read our Bibles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They did all of those things too. But see, God we know is everywhere. We know we can have a relationship with God anywhere. But back then, God was really in one place for the most part. As far as they knew, God was at the tabernacle, at the temple, in the Holy of Holies, where one man could go once a year. And they showed up there all the time because they said, We want to be as close to God as we possibly can. We want to have a deep relationship with God. That's why the tabernacle was so important to them because they didn't want to just be distant from God. And they knew if they were going to have their sins dealt with and be in right relationship with God and walk under the blessing and the favor of God, they had to go offer the sacrifices at the tabernacle and the temple. It was essential. You could not have a relationship with God in those days without going to the tabernacle, without going to the temple, without offering sacrifices. You could not have it. You would not walk under the blessing. You would walk under curses. You would see all kinds of terrible things happen. But that was how God brought them into a relationship. And see, this entire Old Testament, whether you believe it or not, is a picture of your salvation. Just like I said, Jesus came into your Egypt... He came into my Egypt when I was in bondage to sin and all kinds of evil ungodliness. And he came in and he spoke to Satan. He said, that's my boy. Let him go. And he brought me out and he applied the blood of Jesus to my life and to my home. And the destroyer passed over me and said, I can't touch that when one. That one's been purchased by the blood. And when I went into those baptismal waters and I came up out of the water, it was an earthly symbol of a heavenly reality that all my sins were washed away, that all my old enemies were drowned in my past. And I came out into this wilderness, folks. But let me tell you something, I'm heading to a promised land. I'm heading to a promised land, and God is taking me there. But right now, He's teaching me relationship. And see, in the same way in the New Testament, guess when Jesus died on the cross? He died on the cross on Passover to say, I am. That blood of the lamb that was sacrificed in the old covenant. I was the fulfillment of that. And guess what? 50 days later on Pentecost, he revealed himself through the coming of the Holy Spirit when he filled them with the Holy Spirit. And now he wants you and I to enter into that relationship with him the same way he redeems you so that he can reveal himself to you so that you can enter into a relationship with you. More than anything, he wants to dwell with his people. He wants to be with his people. And, and, and see, there's something that stirs in us when we really know the Holy Spirit. We want to dwell with God, don't we? we want, wherever God's at, I won't be there. If God's there, I want to be there. And so he starts to talk about these things and we start to understand but see, like I said, the way they had a relationship with God in the Old Testament was through the tabernacle. When Moses built it, it was sort of outdoors. It had like beaver pelts on the top of it and some different things. It was, it, it was not ideal because you see later they start wanting to build a temple, right? They want something more solid for their relationship with God, something more firm for their relationship with God. And so he builds a tabernacle in the beginning and it lasts 600 years from like 1566 to 966. The tabernacle is moving around with them. And here's what was so interesting is when they were in the wilderness, there was a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. And when that pillar would move, they would pick up the tents and they would move the tabernacle wherever God is going. What does that demonstrate? That means that your life is surrendered and yielded to God. You don't get to say, God, you move with me where I go and you go with me in whatever I want to do. No, you come to a place in your relationship with God where you say, God, I'm yielded to you wherever you move, that's where I'm going. You tell me to live in Clay County, I'm living in Clay County. You tell me to move to Mozambique, I'm headed there. I'm moving where the fire goes. I'm yielded to God in His relationship. And they would pick up tents, son, and say, wherever God's moving, that's where we're going. That's where we're putting the tabernacle, and they'd follow Him around. So that lasted for 600 years, and all of a sudden, David comes around, and David is aware, man, we need to build a better place for you, God. We need to build a better place. And he starts having 24-7 worship in the tabernacle. And all of a sudden he says, God, I want to build a temple. And God says to David, he said, David, you can't build me a temple. you got too much blood on your hands. He said, I'll let Solomon, your son, build me a temple. And so Solomon, he builds this massive temple where he used 30,000 woodsmen and 156,000 stonemasons to construct the wall of this thing. And that temple was amazing. It was just like the tabernacle, except it was built and beautiful and massive. And he built that thing and it stood for about 400 years. But guess what? They rebelled against God and God allows the Babylonians to come in and they decimated the temple. The walls were in ruin. And see, when they didn't have a tabernacle, when they didn't have a temple, they didn't have the presence of God. They had no relationship. They went into Babylon, into exile. And if you read through the Bible, there was a man named Nehemiah that got a burden in his heart that said the walls are in ruin. Nobody has a relationship with God like they need. We need to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And they go back in and they begin to rebuild. And as they're rebuilding, they come to a place where they, it stands once again. And once Nehemiah gets the temple rebuilt, guess what? It lasts many years, but it is destroyed once again in 70 A.D., just after Jesus' death. Just after Jesus' death, it is destroyed once again. And in that time, Herod the Great, this is very interesting, because Herod the Great, he worshipped at the temple. He married a Jewish woman. And he built a temple. I got a temple-size comparison kind of thing. And Herod's temple, if you see it, look, he built extra onto it because Herod was a little bit extra. He wanted all the praise. He wanted all the worship. But if you remember, Herod would be going and offering sacrifices at this temple because he wanted the blessing of the Lord. But guess what? He wanted to kill the Christ child. Can I tell you, you cannot have the blessing of the Lord without the Christ child. A lot of people want the blessing in the favor of God, but they don't want the Christ child. They don't want Jesus. They don't want to deny themselves. They don't want to live for Him. They want to live like the world, live like the devil, and have the blessings at the same time. And I'm telling you, there's a day when that system's going to run out, folks. We need Jesus. We need Jesus more than we ever have. And so many people are living without him, but they still come to the temple. They still offer the false sacrifices, just like Herod did. But Jesus is saying, I need to be in your heart. I need to dwell with you. I need to live with you. I need to be with you. But he built this. You see Solomon's temple on the left. It's just a little thing. And down here in the the bottom corner, you see a little American football field. So you see that he built something massive. Why? Because it was important. It was essential. And here's something else that was very interesting about it. Out of 613 laws that they followed, 200 of them had to do with just what you did in the temple. Just how you did those things in the temple. 200 of them. And so, go to the picture of the Holy of Holies. Now, like I said, you've got to bear with me. I don't know if you can see this or not. But you see the inner court. There's the high priest. The high priest, the Levites, were the only ones allowed to enter into this section of it. And once a year, one man who was the high priest was allowed to enter over here into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And as we've said before, now Jewish history says that they would actually tie a rope around the man's leg just in case when he went in there in the presence of God, he died so they could drag him back out, right? If the bell stopped ringing, because they'd have bells and pomegranates around their garments, and if the bell stopped ringing, they'd be like, "Uh uh-oh, better drag him out, you know? Start working him out because it was, it was, they, they, they knew about the holiness of God, the purity of God, and you couldn't just come into God's presence presumptuously. See, we, we, we do that more and more all the time, and, and I'm gonna to get to the point that why we can come into God's presence now eventually, but there was only one man that could enter into that place, so the temple was a very holy place, it was very important, and what they were saying is, okay. We want God, we want to dwell with Him, but we need a representative, we need a mediator, we need somebody to go into the presence of God on our behalf and offer up the blood which was ultimately pointing to Jesus. This is what Hebrews is saying, the writer of Hebrews. He's saying there's a high priest now that went in for you and he's paved a way for you to go into that same place that only one man a year could go into. There's something different. There's something that has happened that has changed. So, two, number 2, why is the temple important to us? Why does it why does it even why does it even matter? Number 1, it matters because it was important to Jesus. It matters because it was important to Jesus and he was trying to demonstrate something to us. And Jesus when he was a little boy in Luke 2:21 and 22, it says that when basically he was 8 days old, he went into the temple to be circumcised and to offer up the sacrifice according to the law. So when he was eight days old, you see Jesus in the temple. And then when he became a 12-year-old boy, they go to the temple for Passover. And you remember Jesus was in the temple. He was like communicating with the Pharisees and talking with the Pharisees. And they said, Man, we're astounded at the wisdom of this young 12-year-old boy. Well, they didn't realize they were talking with the word of God. They were talking with the one who wrote the word, they were discussing. And when the parents left, Jesus lingered behind, and they lost Jesus. How many of you you ever lost Jesus? Some of you, have lost him. You went walking off and didn't realize you left him behind. And they went and left Jesus behind, and they said, "Oh, oh my gosh, we left Jesus. We need to go back. We need to get Jesus. They show up. They said, Jesus, what in the world are you doing? They're mad parents. Somebody said, well, see, Jesus sinned. He left his parents. No, no, Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. He was spotless. They come back. Jesus teaches them a lesson. He said to them in Luke two forty nine, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He's saying this temple right here is where my father has dwelt all these years. We constructed this, tip, this temple, this tabernacle. This is where my father has dwelt all these years. And he said, I must be in my father's house. Didn't you know that? And see, it goes on further. You talk about Jesus. This is what's very interesting to me because as a young boy, as a 12-year-old boy, how many of, how many of you took your kids to Disney World? Anybody? Anybody took their kids to Disney World? praise What did they do when they got there? Did they, were they like freaked out by it? Were they like, oh, Mickey? Did they do any of that or anything? Anybody? Yeah. Here's the way I see it. Jesus was born in Nazareth, which is a picture of God's humility. Because you know that if you read in history books, Nazareth in Jesus' day had about 200 people. And the the historians don't even list Nazareth. The only reason that Nazareth even became popular was because Jesus was born there. There was nobody there. But God says, you know what, I'm going to be born into the world. Let me pick me a place out. It would be like him saying, you know what, I I think I'm going to be born down crawfish. Crawfish. That's the humility of God. Because we'd expect Him to be born in Washington, D.C., maybe New York City. I don't know. We'd expect Him to be born in downtown Jerusalem, like at an altar, maybe at the temple. You know, like Mary go to the temple and just go into labor. She, uh, anything, anything, something like that. But no, he's born and he's raised in a small town. He's born in Bethlehem, but he comes to a small town. He's raised in a town called Nazareth because it reveals the humility of God. And when he's a 12-year-old boy, you imagine him pacing that way up to the temple mount. And when he sees that massive temple that Herod had built, he would have been like going to Disney World. He would have said, oh, that's my father's house. And he goes up there and he sees that. See, it was important to Jesus. It was essential for Jesus. But see, they understood that it was rooted in Jewish history because even after Jesus dies, well, before he dies, remember, Satan takes him up where? On the temple mount. Says, if you cast yourself down from here, I'll give you... I, he'll, he'll take up you in his hands. All the angels will take you up and protect you. But see, he comes into the temple, Jesus does, He drives out the money changers twice and he says, this is to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. And he he drives it out twice. But then even after he dies, his disciples, in Acts 2.46, it says that they continued daily with one accord in the temple. In Acts 3.1, it says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Why are they still going to the temple? What does it matter? I thought Jesus did away with the temple. Well, see, they're still going to the temple because it was ingrained in who they were. It was a big part. It was the most important aspect of Jewish spirituality. But see, the the temple is important for us because it shows us that God wants to dwell with His people. And here's what I need you to understand. God dwells with His people but in the end of all this, in Revelation 21.3, I want you to notice what it says. This is when everything is restored. I know you think as a Christian in Southeastern Kentucky that when you die, you just go to heaven and you float on clouds and that's it. But do you realize that if you were to die right now, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord if you're under the blood of Jesus. And you'll be in the presence of the Lord. But a day is coming when Jesus returns and the body Bodies will be raised up out of the ground and your spirit will be reunited with your, your, your glorified body and He will renew the face of this earth and heaven and earth will become one and we'll be right back on this same planet renewed and perfected under the glory of God. That excites me. That lets me know that we ain't floating on clouds. I'm excited about heaven, but do you realize there's a day coming when heaven and earth become one? And Revelation 21.3 says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men in that time. And He will dwell with them and they shall be His people. And God Himself will be with them and be their God. Ultimately, it's all about God dwelling with His people. And can you imagine in that day when you and I are all around there, there's going to be worship going on. It says in in Isaiah that we'll even be growing crops, man. And they ain't going to fail. Like nothing's going to be bad. We're going to see our loved ones once again. We're going to have homes. We're going to develop things. We're going to have roles and responsibilities. We're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ for eternity. In the beauty of that perfection. And we're going to dwell with God. Everywhere you go, you've had moments in the presence of God where tears begin to stream down your face and you sense the goodness and the love of God. Maybe just for a moment. A lot of you probably still haven't because you still come to church and you're still tied up like Herod. You think it's a religious ritual. It's not. It's a relationship with God. And you've got to get to that place where you push. You go into the gate. Then you go into the inner court. and Then you say, you know what? I'm not just satisfied with just having my mind stimulated by a sermon on Sunday. I need the presence of God. See, a lot of us, we've never even entered the gates yet. We've not even been to the bronze altar. I need to to pause. I'm about to to give an altar call right now, praise God. I ain't going to be done with my sermon. But the greatest picture of the presence of God among His people is the incarnation of Jesus. In John 1, 14, notice this this scripture. We read it already, but it's, it's the underline that I gave you. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. That word dwelt, it was the same word in Revelation and it means literally tabernacled. So the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He's saying you want to know what the new covenant tabernacle is? It was Jesus Christ in the flesh for about 33 years. And he says, he, dwe- he tabernacled among us and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's saying that Shekinah glory that dwelt back in the Holy of Holies that nobody could see. When Jesus showed up on the earth, the veil was removed and all of a sudden you saw the full weight of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. You saw the fullness of the tabernacle and God revealed Himself and said, Here I am. I'm no longer hiding behind a veil. I've come out and I've come right among you in flesh and blood so that you can see what the glory is all about. He was the fulfillment of the tabernacle. He was the fulfillment of the temple. But let me take it just a little bit further because He was the tabernacle. He was the temple. But guess what? Why, why did God have to take on flesh? Because He had an end goal. And the end goal is that ultimately He would dwell... With his people. But he wanted to dwell with his people in the most intimate way. So he says, you know what? I can't dwell with my people because they're humanity. They're sinful. They're unclean. So Jesus comes and takes on our sinful flesh and sanctifies humanity so that now we could become his dwelling place. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. He's writing to an audience who doesn't even know anything about the temple. They're Gentiles. And in verse 16 he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple are you? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know that Old Testament temple where God used to dwell? He doesn't dwell there anymore. You remember when Jesus came in the flesh? He said, Jesus isn't here anymore. You know where the new covenant temple is? It's you and it's I. The body that you dwell in has now become the temple of the living God. Now see, what that should do is cause your brain to explode. Honestly. Honestly. Because you're talking about the all-holy God. That changes things. I don't know about you, but for me, when I know, even even with what God's called me to, here's what I realize. I realize that I'm the temple of the the Lord. He says the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And He speaks very much in uh, in context of your purity, how you're living. If you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, guess what? It changes things. You know, if you recognize that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, it changes things that you watch. It changes things that you say. There are so many times in my life that maybe I, I get a bad attitude, I go a different direction, maybe I look at something that I shouldn't. Or, but, but the slightest thing, and I start to recognize, man, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, and what I do for God requires purity. I cannot allow this temple to be defiled. And oftentimes I have to be reminded of the blood of Jesus that cleanses me and purifies me. And I've got to be reminded of the Holy Spirit that comes to convict me. I don't know where you stand with God right now, but I'm telling you, I am thankful for the Holy Spirit that convicts me of my sin. That keeps me in line. That says, no, Clay, you cannot do that and have a clean, pure relationship with me. And some of you, you feel so distant from God. And it's not that you've lost your salvation. It's not that you don't know God. But your temple is defiled. You've let some stuff in there that's not supposed to be in there. You've allowed little sins here and little sins there. A little bit of pornography. Maybe I got drunk a few times. Maybe these things are starting to sneak into my life. And you're allowing those things to come in and defile your temple. And God's saying, if I'm going to dwell with you and I'm going to use you, you've got to allow those things to be taken care of. What part of me are you not going to yield to me? You know, we went to a small group the other day. How many of you you are good hosts in your home, right? You, You just do a good job of hosting. People, I know, dear, dear, like my mother-in-law over here, man, she'll, if you come to her house right now, she will cook you like an eight-course meal. It's amazing. You Come into my house, you may not get that. Um, but, you know, when, some, when you go into somebody's house, like I went to a small group, and Jeremy Hacker was hosting at his house, and he had like a hidden room, you know. It's weird. They had built on, and there was like a hidden room that was a, it was, they got the kitchen, but then they got another kitchen. And all of a sudden, this door opened up. I was like, oh, my gosh. I walked back into that hidden kitchen. I went in. I, got, I went in the fridge. I got me something out of the fridge. And then we had to go change my baby's diaper. I went back into his bedroom. You know, I was looking around, looking in the drawer. And no, I'm kidding. I didn't do that. <laughs> What's he got in here? I didn't do any of that. But no, he, he, he was willing to allow me anywhere in his home. As far as I know, there may have been other places. I don't know. But most of the time, when people come to our house, they'll be like, hey, what's the Wi-Fi password? We'll be like, you can't get on my internet, bro. <laughs> hey, y'all ever had anybody do that? I've not. I mean, everybody's like, yeah, I, hold on, let me get, I'll get you my password. They'll, they'll give you access. Well, let me, t- show, me, show me on a tour. Oh, sure. And they'll show you into the house. We'll be, like, be, be like, well, let me check your garage. No, you can't go in the garage. People don't do that, do they? They let you into every area. But how come when the Holy Spirit comes into our house, we only let him into a few different places? When he comes into our house, we say, hey, just sit back out on there on the porch just for a minute, buddy. I got a few things in here I'm not interested in you seeing. Don't go up into my kids' bedrooms because I'm not going to let you help me raise my kids, Holy Spirit. Don't go into my garage because you're not going to tell me and dictate to me how I spend my money and the kind of toys I buy. We ain't going to give you my Wi-Fi password because I don't want you seeing what I'm looking at on the Internet. We ain't going to let you come into our bedroom because my marriage is my marriage and I'm not going to let you dictate that Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, many of you, you've not even let the Holy Spirit into your home yet. And you say, well, Clay, this is hard. This is convicting. I want it to be. Because you're not doing any good in your relationship with God if you're not letting Him into those rooms. You're not doing any good. You're coming to church, you're doing like Herod. Let's go to the temple, praise the Lord but you are rejecting the Christ child. And this is important because, see, it's not the temple is not a place where we go anymore. It's not, it, it, you are. You are the dwelling place of God. He wants to dwell with His people. Number three, I already said it, but we have become God's temple. See, in the Old Testament, God created a temple for His people, but in the New Testament, God creates a people to be His temple. He wants us. And what does that mean? That means everywhere you go, you know you are a carrier. You are a host of the glory of God. You're a host of God's presence. That means that people can have an encounter with the living God through your life. That means that when we show up here at church on Sunday, there should be such a manifest presence of God that people that don't know God come in. And the Scripture even says it like this, that they fall on their face and begin to worship God and say this. This is in 1 Corinthians 14. God is in you of a truth. God's in these people. I, I'm sensing God now. Why? Because He's in those people. He lives in them. The last thing I want to, for people to believe is you know, a lot, and a big thing is we, we talk about the house of God, come to the house of God. Let me tell you something. I hate buildings to begin with. That, no, we come here this morning, that sucker was leaking like crazy. That ain't the house of God. This building is not the house of God. This sucker gets torn down, and you know what? If it does get torn down, I'll be pleased. But if you defile the temple of God, that's another issue. This building's not the temple of God. Your body is. You are the temple of God. So, is he resident in you or is he president? Now, let me close to make it a little bit more easy because I know I went after you right then. Everybody's still good? Praise the Lord. He's doing good stuff in us. I and mean, there's nothing like purity. Here's what I say about this. I struggle as much as the next do with different things. Like, I'm not here to condemn anybody on any Sunday morning. But I tell you this, with my struggles, I always come back to the Lord. I repent. I confess. I say, God, I don't want this in my life. I need to be cleansed. I need to come up under the blood. I need to be forgiven. I know that I am. I know that I am, but I want to stay pure. I want to be close. I don't just want to know that I'm going to heaven when I die. That's cheap. What good is it to know you're going to heaven when you die and living like the devil right now? I want to be pure in heart right now. I want to walk with God right now. But see, here's, here's, here's the beauty of it because when we first walk into the temple in the Old Covenant, the first place that you're going to come is what's called the bronze altar, if you put a picture of that up. So if you would come in, you'd come into the gate and it looks something like this. Like I said, you got to work with me on my pictures. But this thing on the left is called the bronze altar. That was the first place you'd get to stop now as a regular individual you wouldn't get to go really past this if you saw the last picture when you go into the inner court where other things were right there but you wouldn't get to go in there you'd have to stop right here at this altar and the Levites would have to offer a sacrifice on your behalf and here's what they do you couldn't go any further than this now there's a reason this altar is bronze because bronze in the old covenant always typifies God's judgment It typifies his righteousness that there has to be a payment for sin, a penalty for sin. Do you realize that all of these things, just like that dude saying God's will is not uh, of any concern to this Congress. Do you realize that he's going to stand in judgment for that the same way that you and I are going to stand in judgment for our sins? There's going to be a righteous and a holy judgment against the sin of the world. But here's the good news for you and I as Christian people is that there has already been a righteous and a holy judgment against sins for those who believe in Christ. Now watch this. They would walk in and they they would step into this place. Now what they would do is they would have to bring, very specifically, here's what it says in Exodus 20. Let's look at this. Exodus 20, he says in verse 24 through 26, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stone. For if you use your own tool on it, you have profaned it nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. God is saying very clearly that the offering and the cross is not about human effort. Here's what He's saying. He's saying with this bronze altar, when you build it, you can't use your own tool on it, nor can you go up by steps. What does that mean? There is nothing that you can do that is going to cleanse you of your sin. There's nothing that you can do. There's no steps you can take that are going to cleanse you of your sin. There's one thing that cleanses a sinner from his sin, and that is the blood of the Lamb. He said, you ain't going to be able to do that. You've got to understand that it's not about what you do or what you've done. It's about what He did and what He has done. It's about the blood of the Lamb. So when they came in, they would have to offer something very specifically. Here's what it says in Leviticus 1, verse 3 and 4. It says, if His offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let Him offer a male without blemish. Notice without blemish because Jesus was without blemish. He shall offer it of His own free will. See, this is of your own free will. You get to decide to come. If you want to, you don't have to come. It's up to you. At the door of the tabernacle of the meeting before the Lord. And then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on on his behalf to make atonement for him. So let me give you this illustration. Let's go through the little series of pictures. I found these somewhere, took a picture of them. So a guy, notice this, he got a a lamb without blemish. He's saying, boys, I'm sinful. I need my sin to be dealt with. I got to take this in. He takes a lamb without blemish. He offers it to the priest. The priest starts to look all around this, this lamb to make sure that this lamb is without spot, without blemish. If it's perfect, if it's without spot, without blemish, go to the next section, right? Then what happens is, is the man will lay his hands on this lamb. And when he lays his hands on this lamb, the man's hand he imputes his sin to this lamb and the innocence of the lamb is imputed to him. Now see, this is imputed righteousness. What does this mean? There's something that happens at salvation. Righteousness and right standing with God in salvation is a gift. That means that you don't do anything to earn it. You don't do anything to deserve it. When you believe in Christ Jesus, He became sin on the cross. Your sin was imputed to Him that He didn't deserve and there was an exchange that happened and His innocence and His righteousness was imputed to you. Just like you're wearing clothing. Just like you're wearing a garment. A robe of righteousness with clothing in you. And you say, well, but I failed last week. Guess what? If you're under the blood of the Lamb, you've got a robe of righteousness on you and God says, He still stands before me with right standing because it's the blood that's washed him. When I go before God, guess what? When I go before God on the day of judgment, He will judge me according to my works, but He will not judge me according to my sin. You know why? Because my sin was already paid for on Calvary. My sin was already punished on Calvary. The penalty was already paid for me, so there's no penalty, there's no punishment left for me. My God will still correct me. He will still deal with me, and ultimately He will judge me based on how I respond to Him, but He cannot judge me once again for sin because it's already been judged on the cross. So sin is imputed. Righteousness is transferred to the sinner. Next, last slide. So what does He do? And this guy right here is having a Holy Ghost meltdown right here because he's happy about what's going on. But see, they put the lamb on the altar the Lamb suffers the judgment of God, the fire of God on the bronze altar. And in that judgment, he, he is consumed by fire and the sinner walks away innocent. There's a transfer that takes place. But see, in the book of John, John 1, I, I believe that it is. See, after He says He came and he, and he tabernacled among us, the very next thing it says, if you go in sequence, is John the Baptist says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's saying He is the one that is offered at the bronze altar. And the bronze altar for Christ was the cross. That became the bronze altar. And He's hung on that cross because the bronze altar was lifted up above everything else. And the same way that the bronze altar was lifted up, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all unto me. He was lifted up on that bronze altar of the cross. The judgment of God, the penalty for sin was poured out on him. And there was an exchange that took place on that cross. Now here's one of the things that I love. One of the things that I love is they would take the ashes after this thing was burnt down. And the priest would come over on the east side and he would scoop up the ashes And he would take those ashes and he would begin to bring them out and he would dump them out on the west side, outside of the tabernacle, as if to typify that your sin is now ashes and your sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. And that's beautiful, isn't it? This is the thing, this is what God, this is the simple gospel. This is what God offers us. And so here's my last point, number four Jesus is the true tabernacle. His cross is the brazen altar, and He is the Lamb of God. We are the temple of the Lord, and the only thing that can cleanse this temple is the blood of Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit was looking for a temple, but He can only dwell in something that's holy and purified. But when He sees that you've been cleansed and washed by the blood of Jesus, He says, that's a very clean place I believe I'll enter in. But see, then it's your your responsibility, my responsibility to walk with the Holy Spirit, to host the glory and the presence of God, to walk with Him and to say, I don't want to defile this temple, God. I want this to be a vessel that is fit for the Master's use. And some of you, you continue and you continue to hang on to things that you know are defiling the temple of God. And it's time to lay those things down. It's time to lay those things down because I'm telling you, if we as a people, if we say, Lord, we, we see what's going on in the world, you, you'd have to be crazy to look at what's going on in the world and think that you've got all the time in the world and everything's all good. You have to be out of your mind. I apologize for being a little bit straightforward this morning. But we're, we're really living in times where there's really no time to not be straightforward. So at some point, you've got to come to, to, to this place with God where you say, am I going to be a, a real Christian? Am I going to be a real follower of Christ? Am I going to let the Holy Spirit have access into every room in my life? Or am I just going to keep Him out on the porch and say, you know what, I'm good with just kind of going to church and saying I'm a Christian, but you need to stay out on the porch. Now we need to invite Him in. We need to say, Lord Jesus, I need your blood to cleanse me. You offered up the sacrifice. I need your righteousness. I need you to do an inner work. And in Holy Spirit, I'm inviting you to cleanse me and, and purify me so that you can use me how you see fit. That's what that's the call this morning. Amen. I want you to bow your heads just for a moment. The first thing I want to start with is just that. There's there, I believe with all my heart there are people in here that when push comes to shove. Maybe you said a prayer one time, but you know in your heart whether or not you're truly a follower of Jesus and whether or not you've experienced salvation. Salvation is a conversion. There's a change that takes place. And there's a a yielding to to God and saying, Lord, my life is not my own anymore. I'm willing to turn from my sin and I want to receive the gift of this salvation. And I want to be cleansed from my sin and forgiven. And it's only the blood of Jesus that does that. If that's you and you say, right now, I want to pray and I want to receive Jesus and I want to receive that salvation, why don't you just lift your hand up so I can see you. Anybody, anybody at all. And for the rest of us, we just want to invite the Holy Spirit into every room of this temple. So just acknowledge that right before Him right now. Lord we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and Holy and Holy Spirit right now we are asking you to enter into every room And Lord, right now we're giving you our sin. Not a one of us in here are perfect, Lord God. And it's by your mercy and by your grace that we stand. But we do believe that, Holy Spirit, you're putting your finger very specifically on some things in our life because there are some rooms that we've got locked off to you. And we're asking you right now to open those doors, to enter in, to set us free from those bondages, from those chains. Lord, we give you every room of this house. Holy Spirit, enter in purify us, transform us and empower us God to live the way that you've called us to live God we want to live free from sin free from this world God and we want to be filled with your spirit God so that we can fulfill the purpose that you have for our lives we are the temple of the living God so Holy Spirit we ask you to come right now and change us in Jesus name in Jesus name I want you to stand to your feet we're going to worship together listen if you need prayer You can come around this altar and pray. You can pray at your seat. But you know, the altar was very important because it was a place that people offered sacrifices. That's why people call this an altar, right? Because when you come to the altar, when you come forward, you're offering a sacrifice to God. In humility, you're bowing before the Lord and saying, God, I need you. I'm not willing to just go through another church service. I want to experience your presence. I want to heal my body and my life and my soul to everything that you are. You don't have to come to this altar, but in your heart, you have got to respond to the Lord. You've got to get in the habit of doing it. So where you're at, let's worship together. If you need prayer, I'd love to pray for you about anything that you've got want.